Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod, the podcast of the School of Law here at Queen's University. So I've been looking forward to talking to you not only about your your new book, but on yourself. I'd like you to start with a, a bit of a, a biography, talk about your both your journalistic and your strategic interests, because I think you're you're also a an international relations and geopolitics specialist with a particular interest in the uh, Southern Caucasus, but obviously a, a broader knowledge of the Asian politics as well. So. Why don't you start with a little potted history of your own life and uh, your professional life in journalism and geopolitics? Thank you very much, Peter, for uh, this wonderful uh, podcast. I really appreciate and I also say a big thanks to you for organizing this podcast. So regarding me about my career and my biography, uh, I started my journalism career from Pakistan until 2009. I was working with Pakistani mainstream uh, English newspapers. But after that, I resigned just because of some principal stands. Because in Pakistani media, there was the, at that time, the journalists and the journalism were getting huge power. And they were quite influential. But uh, apparently, uh, on the other side, there was the emerging yellow journalism threat there. And uh, I I don't think so that being objective and uh, being a very impartial journalist, uh, it could be uh, suitable to you or anybody else to be a yellow journalist and to sensationalize and to exploit the issues. So I, uh, according to my principal stand, I left Pakistani media. And after that, uh, since still, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I did not work with any Pakistani newspaper uh, just because I think that I am misfit in that media society. So after that, uh, I started working with the international newspaper and uh, also with the international uh, television channels. So I work a series of the uh, international broadcasters. And uh, then I uh, went to be a roving correspondent in South Asia and uh, some other countries I serve. But uh, after 2014, my interest take me towards the South Caucasus. And that is one of the most volatile part uh, that is was this former serious countries so that's made me more interesting in this area because when i visited first time in 2015 in these areas so at that time the Karabakh conflict nobody knows about even that conflict that this is a frozen conflict between armenia and azerbaijan so i spent some time uh, in azerbaijan and uh, during this time i start preparing my notes about this uh, book that there should be a book and then uh, last year when it became into the international headlines that Armenia and Azerbaijan went into a frontline, a very big fight. And, uh, and the fight was actually uh, broke out on this incident that was the Thos. So I uh, started uh, and I made my mind that I should finish my book because I have previously, I was writing with another angle. But of course, when there was the international developments take place, of course, the angle will be a little bit changed. Malik, um, just for the benefit of the listeners, could we step back and 
just describe the the geography. We're talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Just talk about the geography and a little bit about the geopolitical history, the the emergence of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh as a contested region or a contested oblast during the Soviet years. You know, almost from the beginning, you know, there's been a, a, a rather contested and conflictual dispute over the identity and the autonomy or the integrity of the region uh, with conflicting claims between those two uh, interests. But of course, Azerbaijan and Armenia are fractures, aren't they? They are part of the the fallout, the fractures that have um, arisen from the collapse of old empires. So maybe a a little bit of a geography lesson. And then a little bit of the geopolitical history about how this problem emerged would be very useful uh, for our listeners. Thanks. So I think it's very interesting to go into the background and the history of this conflict. And mostly these conflicts that emerged, mostly emerged at the time when there was the partition, when there was the disintegration of some major powers. So I will just give you an example of uh, the similar conflict that emerged between India and Pakistan, and that was the Kashmir. So now if you can see the history and the geopolitical of the Kashmir, so it's divided into two parts. One is occupied by Pakistan, the second part which is occupied by India. Both use the same term to against each other, that Pakistan occupied this one, Indian used that Pakistan occupied this one, Pakistan used that India occupied that part. So similarly, when the Soviet was going to be disintegrated and there was the unrest and all this problem was going on at that time, this Nagorno-Karabakh problem started and abruptly because there was some ethnic Armenians who who, who have been settled there, and at the same time, who were some Azari people uh, from Azerbaijani nationality people who were, they were living there, and immediately there was this uh, Russian disintegration, uh, it's happened, and after this, immediately, uh, you can say that after a, a new government and uh, something like a de facto kind of the government country has been formed, like in the form of the Nagorno-Karabakh, which Azerbaijanis don't accept, and the biggest thing is this that uh, that uh, which which I think that the uh, the international resolution because the United Nation has four resolution on this. So when the United Nation has the four resolution that the this part is actually the part of the Azerbaijan because they have uh, moved for resolution according to that four resolution. I think that uh, at that time the Armenian has less say and less comp- less claim as compared to Azerbaijan. So after this uh, uh, conflict, when uh, uh, Russia was disintegrated and uh, Azerbaijan became an independent, independent country, Armenia became Georgia and all these um, former CAS, uh, CAS countries got independence. So after that, the international powers, of course, exploited this issue according to their own vested interest. But the one issue was this, that uh, the one million refugees because uh, who migrated and who have some Azerbaijani origin, they were purely Azerbaijani nationalities. So they would have to migrate from the Nagorno-Karabakh while leaving all these places uh, from Azerbaijan, uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh to main uh, Baku city because Baku is one of the largest city in Azerbaijan. So there was a huge influx of the migrants. Uh, I mentioned even in my book that how big the migrant crisis for the Azerbaijan to tackle. So this is an overall, just like a gist of this history. 
and uh, then finally you can say that uh, there was the osc mits group that uh, that has been formed to solve this problem peacefully but unfortunately i can say that it was not solved through peacefully and a horrific war witnessed uh, between both the countries and then uh, azerbaijan take back its 20% land uh, with the uh, moscow maneuvering and you can say that the uh, with the help of the you can say that the russia middle consensus okay in the literature it's uh, the, the the presentation of the conflict is one where the armenian majority i mean it's the, the statistics presented are that the armenian ethnic majority within the gorno karabakh is up around 99% um and their claim to autonomy uh you know they they have a persistent claim to autonomy uh, i think they've got uh they've actually named their state haven't they um as an independent country how how does their claim for autonomy sit in your mind in terms of its legitimacy you know normally we the un you know would normally honor um a claim by a population that wants to assert its own national integrity in some way so what what mitigates against that what do you think uh, undermines or deprives or should deprive that armenian population of the, uh, the its its legitimacy and its claim to nationhood given your own sense of the history and uh, and the uh, uh, disputed claims yeah so actually if you, if if we go to the history and the very long history because in the short history the armenian claims are not as powerful but if you can go the long history like 1000 years or maybe 800 years so i think that that history is not something like this because at that time the geopolitics and everything was totally changed according to the to, uh, uh, today's ground realities but after this uh, after the russia intervened to disintegration and when the armenians occupied this nagorno karabakh they tried to settle the armenian from main armenian uh, from armenia towards nagorno karabakh and they tried to erase all the proofs and the mosque and the all these things about the about that belong that's that could be proved as the footprint of the azerbaijani origin in this area so they tried to remove each and everything but still you can say agadam there is a very big mosque in all these other cities like susha that is one of the cultural capital of the azerbaijan because there is the remaining of the azerbaijani culture uh, there are uh, very strong proofs so azerbaijan even now in today they are going to uh, sue uh, armenia to uh, to erasing and to destroying all this historical culture that belong to azerbaijan so i think that it is it it could be uh, more better and i think that uh, that some international experts of the culture and the uh, art and craft and all these things who who can have some sort of the knowledge and a better research they can be in much better position to go and to research and to have uh, uh, some claims on this that who has the more uh, i think that the historical roots on this area but i think again it will be very hard uh, to prove that like the 1000 year history and towards the like 102 year 200 history because that is more easy so according to this recent history azerbaijan claims are more powerful as compared to armenia right of course the uh, the uh, the leaders of the 
is it Artsakh Republic? Yeah, they call it the Artsakh. The, yeah. They they would also claim, you know, going back hundreds of years, that uh, you know that they have a right to their own nationhood. Of course, you know. Anyway, um, you know, we know how these histories are mobilized, and uh, there's never a, a very settled uh, view on these things. Before we look at the the detail of the conflict and the geopolitics, do you have a sense of where the solution might lie? What do you think? Uh, some kind of binational agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan might be possible. An overarching geopolitical agreement to sponsor the continuing um, autonomy or at least a semi-autonomous status of the region. Is that, is that likely to emerge, do you think, that the, the two countries are going to have to do a deal and, and, and settle their conflict and uh, be joint sponsors or patrons of the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, territory? Is that the likely outcome, um, do you think? Yeah. So after this uh, ceasefire agreement uh, that was happened in uh, Russia between Armenia and Azerbaijan, so now I think that the Russian for Russian peace keeping forces are there. So uh, how long they stay there? I think there is some agreement there that they will stay there, and then after that uh, it will be decided there. So according to the current uh, status uh, and the uh, latest situation, I think that the Azerbaijan and some other regional players are trying to uh, mean that uh, make it and uh, bound Armenia to stay this peace deal which which happened in Moscow. If I think that this deal is not happened and if it is not working, I think that then there is again very tense uh, situation will be in the region. And uh, because I think that the Russia priorities and the uh, Russia um, interest are also changing uh, very fast in the region. Similarly, Turkish footprints has been also seen in this region because um, Turkey is trying to revive its uh, Ottoman Empire and all these things that is coming from uh, Ankara. So now I think that the, I can see that if Turkey and Russia, they don't have the conflict of the interest in the region, that I would say that very hard to uh, to, to stop this conflict because abruptly there will be some sort of the clash because uh, Russia may be, maybe not be able to bear the Turkish influence in this region and Turkey is trying to increase its influence every day, every uh, next move. So recently, if you see that uh, President Erdogan have the statement that uh, uh, on the Ukraine and then after, of course, they have another statement that uh, we are going. We are not going to have challenge anything here in the region. We just want some bilateral relation with Ukraine. But of course, I think that uh, Moscow is aware of the uh, Turkish uh, increasing interest and uh, the increasing in involvement in the region. So I think that this all future scenario depends on most likely on the Ankara and the Moscow that how they gonna going to take all this scenario and the situation. But I don't think so that uh, uh, if uh, any kind of the, any partner or any stakeholder will step back from its deal or try to betray this uh, agreement, I think that the uh, situation will be more horrible than we have seen in the recent uh, Tawas incident between and then the conflict yes. war. Yes, I think what you're saying is uh, sometimes these localized conflicts can be useful and functional 
from the perspective of the bigger geopolitical players that it's useful to have the pot boiling in a sense and to have the the conflict uh, there to be serviced uh, in the interest of the wider geopolitical disputes. So in, in that context, there have been interesting changes in Armenia, for example. I'm just going to ask you to focus now on Armenia. Um, we had the the so-called Velvet Revolution, or kind of a democratization, which came as a bit of a surprise in the region, really, in, in Armenia. Um, but then we, you know, we have this democratic movement, um, uh, changes then in relations with uh, Russia, um, uh, tilt towards Europe, and still they ended up getting into a conflict again with Azerbaijan. I'm trying to understand how a, a democratized region ends up in a hot war again. Why does a, uh, you know, what, what are the geopolitics of uh, Armenia and what are the influences on Armenia and their perceptions of uh, its relationships with Russia? The, the Velvet Revolution, I think that is a very drop scene of the Velvet Revolution of the Nicholas Persinian, which uh, he showed to these people. Uh, but now the problem is this, that the economic challenges are very big for the Armenia right now. And there is a lot of, I think, that the disparate people are disparate after this war. And uh, they are also not happy with Moscow. They tried to move to all the other countries like the West and the US, but they also did not get any substantial help from the West. So I think in the public, I think that there is not some good views uh, that could be uh, towards the Moscow. So this is, I think that, uh, uh, I think that I could say that uh, it could be a, uh, not a good point that uh, mean that uh, Russia and Armenia has been a very long-term ally and uh, I think all the military needs have been uh, you know, fulfilled from the Moscow. So I think that uh, Armenia and not only Armenia but all these CIS countries they are not in a position to challenge Moscow in any case. <laughs> it's very simple that uh, to challenge Moscow is mean that uh, they are going to uh, they are going to put stake on their national interest and everything. And uh, so for Armenia also, similarly, I can say that uh, they are not uh, much uh, in a position to bargain on this uh, phenomena of the uh, pro-Russia or something like have distant from the Russia. And on this, they could bargain with the European countries or the United States. So uh, as far as this... Uh, according to this current economic challenges and after this uh, right now the situation is not very good so uh, the problem is this that armenia is a landlocked country so and they have according to the azerbaijani perspective and the azerbaijani narrative azerbaijan want to be dependent armenia on this corridor that is good they do, they want to open is the neximan corridor and they are trying that this is the last chance for armenia to change their fate so now it's it's depend on the Armenians that how they take this matter, how they accept this offer that uh, because that could be only possible that corridor could only be operational in this case when they accept the uh, Azerbaijani influence and all this Azerbaijani territory that is Nagorno-Karabakh and then they can use this corridor and uh, in that case I think that uh, it is a little bit. Uh, Maybe hard for Armenians because it's mean that they have accepted everything and uh, they are going to use that corridor. It's a very peaceful country, and then they start a very good relation between both uh, 
Armenia and Azerbaijan. So uh, I think that uh, Armenia have very less option right now in their hand. And uh, uh, the one thing is this, that uh, which I think that uh, the planning and uh, all this geostrategical approach of the Nicholas Pajinian was not correct because this was not the time to have uh, to challenge Azerbaijan, a military uh, which is more powerful than Armenia, and uh, to the attack like this in towers in which you are in which uh, Armenia challenged completely. I think that is not a good and that is not a wise decision from any sitting prime minister. And it would be interesting to say a little bit more about that because I know that your book reflects on your own anticipation back in July 2020, wasn't it, when the uh, attack in Torvuz uh, occurred. You could see that that was the it, it was an escalation that was likely to to lead to the all-out war that followed in September. What were the motivations? Do you think it was uh, purely um, a distraction from the economic problems within Armenia, or was there a realistic was there ever a realistic chance of trying to shift the balance in favor of Armenia? That that doesn't seem likely given the uh, the modernization of Azerbaijan's armed forces. Yeah, so actually that was a miscalculation. I can say that that was the miscalculation of the Armenian prime minister because when he when he hit inside Azerbaijan 12th July, Thaos, in which the high-profile military personnel of Azerbaijan died. So it's mean that they the perception and uh, what was in the uh, Armenian prime minister Nicholas Pujan in their mind it, it was in their mind that, okay, we are doing this escalation and after that immediately, Russia will come and they will say, oh, ceasefire and something like that. But actually, that was not happened. And this was actually all triggered one by one and then immediately because there was a huge pressure uh, even in Azerbaijan because the people come out from their homes and uh, there was a huge pressure on the uh, Azerbaijan president that to take the revenge. And uh, after that, they don't have the, any option and then we can see after days and days that we see that first of all we listen to the news that uh, Azerbaijan has occupied uh, and retake some some mountain areas near Nagorno Karabakh and then uh, because some media carry into because I was also uh, observing the international media some international media carried this that okay um, maybe this is a correct or uh, uh, this is a this is a true news or not but then I think that all the international media. Uh, started carrying the stories that Dash Azerbaijan started retaking these areas. So these were actually it was not. I uh, I say these things times and again that this was not a timely and a very accurate move by the Armenian Prime Minister. It was the biggest mistake, uh, which have changed the whole chess game, complete chess game. This one move has changed all the chessboard, and it's all went against Armenia. So the 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 outcome of the war. Uh, between September and November, wasn't it? Armenia actually lost territory uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, they lost access to the corridor, and uh, they had prisoners taken, of course, as well. The, the So the, the calculations from Azerbaijan's perspective, um, was there any... Did, did they act unilaterally? Or do you think their involvement was as much um, a product of Russian and Turkish interests once the opportunity arose after the, the July intervention? I mean, can, can you explain the conflict, in other words, purely from 
Azerbaijan's interests? Were, I mean, did they uh, act out of their own strategic interest? Or was the conflict somehow prompted or useful to the wider players in the region at that point? Yeah, I think Azerbaijan, uh, on, some, on some decisions, they, they are the sole decision makers. And uh, on some things, like, uh, of course, they have a huge... Uh, uh, backing from the Turkish uh, Turkey, even Turkish drone uh, has been game changer in this war. But uh, not only Turkish drone, because I am not saying that the only Turkish drone has changed this everything. No, because Azerbaijan has a huge money and they are purchasing weapon weapon from the many countries. They are purchasing weapon from Israel. They are purchasing weapon from other uh, Russia. Many other countries they are purchasing the weapon. So of course, uh, there was the huge uh, influence of the Turkey. And similarly, because Azerbaijan is not in a position to offend Russia, uh, it's not possible for Azerbaijan. And similarly, they are not in a position that uh, they will uh, they will uh, not listen Ankara on this thing because Ankara is one of the I think that the major major partner and uh, I think due to Turkey they have. Uh, they have these days in which they have retaken the back this uh, territory. So of course, uh, Azerbaijan have uh, huge influence from both sides, from Moscow and from Ankara. Uh, but of course, they have their own choice on this because if Azerbaijan the leadership will not decide to go something like very uh, hard reaction and uh, to give a very tit for tat of the Tawas incident, of course, uh, they will not be able to take back these lands. Yeah. F- f- finally, Malik, tell me, um, you know, at the at the heart of uh, geopolitical interests in any region, one usually comes back to the question of energy and access to uh, resources like gas and oil. Can you um, just outline, and you know, especially in the context of the 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 role of Azerbaijan and the uh, access to the Caspian Sea. Can you maybe d- describe the significance of the conflict and the risks around the any elevation of the conflict um, in the context of the energy politics, the energy geopolitics of the region? Because that seems to explain a lot of those wider interests at the moment. Of course, that uh, this is, I think, that the Azerbaijan revenue and the Azerbaijan capital, I think it's highly dependent on the oil and gas. And uh, they are, I think, that... Uh, um, they are one of the uh, one of those countries who are uh, dependent, highly dependent on this thing, and mostly they are uh, they have the Western clients of this uh, oil and gas. So uh, and Turkey also. So of course that even Moscow even eyes on these uh, resources, and uh, but there is not any chance of uh, some sort of the conflict on the energy resources. Uh, but because Azerbaijan have the very strong capability and capacity. Uh, to hold of its of its sovereign control, and uh, similarly they have the I think a very strong uh, hand on their energy resources. So I don't think so that uh, in near future or something like that they uh, would allow any regional partner to uh, grab their energy resources, and uh, because they are quite uh, quite smart in this thing to utilizing their energy resources between east and west. So and yes. similarly. Uh, if Azerbaijan don't have the energy resources, of course they don't have this huge capital and they don't uh, uh, have a, such a strong army which uh, currently they are going to develop and uh, I think that uh, uh, a strong army actually is the guarantee of your uh, 
protection of the strong energy resources. Yes, because uh, energy and access to oil and gas coming through Azerbaijan is probably Europe's main interest in the area, isn't it? Because Europe has wanted to reduce its reliance on uh, Russian-controlled uh, pipelines, um, and that's and, and the risk, of course, is that the more that that Russia exerts or continues to um, exert its influence, even over Azerbaijan's activity, then Europe remains somewhat hostage to the politics of the region. Exactly, 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 exactly. This is the point. Very good. Now tell me, um, I understand that there were claims during the, after the conflict um, between September and November, that there were uh, atrocities, uh, you know, that, that soldiers, some soldiers were executed um, after they had been captured. The UN has expressed uh, uh, concerns about some of the uh, activities. Has there been an, an investigation? Has the Minsk process or the UN launched an investigation into uh, those incidents? I think it's reported from both sides. I have saw some some news, and I think that it is uh, it should be some international authorities should accountable and make an investigation from both sides. And uh, I think that it, this is quite inhumane and the wild thing that uh, the execution of the soldier in the name of the revenge, I think that is quite, uh, comes into the war crime. It, and uh, I think that any country who is responsible, uh, they should have to be treated according to international law. And the, the situation at the moment uh, with the, the Minsk process, um, has, the, has the corridor, which is now... Uh, patrolled by Russian soldiers. I think there's even some Turkish support. The corridor between Armenia and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, has that reopened? Is there now access between Armenia and the uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, region? I think it's not fully operational, no, but the peace uh, missions are only Russian forces, I think. Uh, there is not, I think, that any other uh, country forces. And the OSC men's group, I think that, that okay, that these guys have a very, I think that the very awkward moment because uh, I think their delegation have visited uh, Azerbaijan president and uh, I think that uh, he asked him that the conflict is resolved now. <laughs> so I think that the OSC men's group disparate all these uh, even the, uh, you can say that Azerbaijan and even the all other stakeholders, because they were not, uh, they did not make any uh, substantial or any concrete actions on this uh, uh, this conflict. And uh, I think that it's it, it was formed, I think, many, uh, many, many years, and uh, but they don't have any output. So I think that this is a quite um, disparate thing from coming from the OSC Men's Group, yeah. Oh, I see. All right. So, really, the the uh, the the intervention that brought an end to the conflict uh, was really a, a, a Russian intervention rather than a, a Minsk group. You would you don't think the Minsk process has much credibility or traction within the region itself? No, OSCE Minsk group actually the mandate which they have given and uh, the mandate that they had, uh, they did not uh, they did not serve according to that mandate. Because the people of the Azerbaijan have, uh, and uh, similarly, other stakeholders have the very high expectation from the OSC Minsk group. But uh, uh, since I was observing this issue, I have uh, only listened that OSC chaired this meeting and this meeting and this meeting. So I think that that is 
uh, that could be more like uh, meetings kind of the stuff rather than some uh, concrete plan and some actions. Um, mostly, uh, some uh, very uh, typical bureaucratic style and something bureaucratic kind of the working, I think. So maybe they have some quite limitations. I'm not fully aware about the inside mechanism of the OSC Mets Group, but apparently uh, what is uh, a general perception about the OSC Mets Group is this, that uh, they did not really deliver very well in this conflict. And now even there is a question mark on the future that what that what next conflict they are going to resolve. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Malik, thank you very much. That's been fascinating just to get your uh, perspective. And uh, can I wish you the best of luck with the book? Yeah, thank you so much, Eamon, for your uh, great support and uh, for your forwards. I think that the, the most I appreciate is <laughs> for this book. Okay, thank you very much and uh, good luck. Thank you.